Matthew chapter 6, beginning at, on page, beginning at verse 5. If you're using the uh, Pew Bibles, it's page 811. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5. The character of true prayer. The character of true prayer. For the Christian, there is nothing, I mean absolutely nothing, like one-on-one, -on -one intimate, sweet communication with our Father who is in heaven. <clears throat> John Calvin once said, prayer takes priority over every other exercise a child of God displays in his Christian walk. Prayer takes priority over every other exercise a child of God displays in his Christian walk. He believed that prayer is the distinguishing mark of the Christian because God is his father. For this reason, we just instinctively cast our burdens upon him. Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon taught that as well you could expect a plant to grow without air and water, as well you cannot expect your heart to grow without prayer and faith. Most of us know that if our prayer life is not what it should be, our life in Christ can't be what it should be. So to help his sheep get their prayer lives in order, Jesus gives his followers the character and construct of true prayer. In our text, he begins by focusing on the place of our prayer. Private places as opposed to public places. And he's not speaking against praying in public, but when you pray in public, there are numerous distractions, like cell phones ringing, sanctuary doors opening and closing, etc., etc., etc. However, when you have a dedicated, quiet location to go to God your Father in private, you can speak without being interrupted or distracted. You can take your time. You can stutter. If you misspeak, you can fix it. If you ask for something, then remember that that's not really what you need. You can actually say, never mind. God is not your boss at work who's going to penalize you for your indecisiveness. Also, in private prayer, you can leave a thought unfinished because God knows what you need. On top of that, your father isn't judging your grammar. The point is you don't have to be perfect. One of the greatest Bibles, one of the greatest prayers in the Bible consists of seven words. It came from the tax collector who was in the temple standing afar off, meaning although he was in a public a place, he went into a private area that he may pray to God one-on-one. -on -one. That text in Luke chapter 18 tells us he would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest and say, said, said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
The heart of the passage we're about to dive into today is about the character of true prayer. Those are the kinds of prayers that God hears. The ones that come from the heart and has his glory and his will in mind. So hopefully, my three main points and my uh, uh, text will help us to uh, uh, communicate better with our Lord, our God, our Savior, who reigns from the heavens above. Uh, Point number one, the prayer that God loves. The prayer that God loves. Uh, Point number two, the prayer that God hates. And point number three, the prayer that reverences God. The prayer that reverences God. So I'm going to read the text, pray, and then we'll dig. We'll dig into the text. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 14, page 811 in your pew Bibles. This is the prayer life changing pure word of God. And when you pray, Jesus said, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Father, we thank you. For your word. Your love shows that you will teach us how we should come before you. Your love is expressed in saying, listen, if you are going to be in relationship with me, here is how you address me and how, here is how you conduct yourself. And as your children, we want to be obedient to your word, Lord. So please teach us. Please help us. And may your, your, your word penetrate our hearts this morning. May not one word fall to the ground that is accurate, that is true. So please help me, Lord, to speak truth from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Point number one, the prayer that God loves. The last time we were in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus condemned the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He told them to He told his people to beware of practicing their righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then they would receive no reward from their father who is in heaven. That was in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1. In our text today, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5, Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Same warning. Whether it's doing acts of righteousness or praying, if 
any of us are doing them in order to be seen by others, Jesus says we are hypocrites. We have no reward from him because we've received our reward already from somebody just coming up to you and saying, man, that was an awesome prayer. I love the way you put your words together. And we're like, thank you. I do it all the time like this. I spend so much time working on my prayers. Give me more. Give me more. No. God says, okay, you have received your reward. When you pray, you come to me. When you pray, it's about me. It's about how I am great. And I am the only one great. You are nothing. Pray like it, like you are in need from me, because I am God. Our prayers are to be focused on God and towards God. Even the word Jesus uses for pray means towards and to exchange. Towards and to exchange. It is literally to face the Lord exchanging human wishes and ideas for his will and his desires by faith. We get a glimpse of this in Psalm uh, chapter 37 and verse 4 when David writes, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Not that he will give us what we selfishly crave, but he will change what we crave to line up with what he desires for us. When we are delighting in him, that's what happens. So when Jesus uses this word, he's saying when we come before the Lord in prayer, in our private place, our disposition should be of someone who delights in the Lord and holds his desires as our top priority. That's why it is a God-honoring practice for us to pray with the mindset that says, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours, Lord. And that's not easy. When your body is racking in pain, your will be done, Lord. That's not easy. When, when, when the trials of this world are just weighing you down, you say, your will be done, Lord, not mine. It's not easy. But it takes faith. It takes faith to believe that God knows what is best for you more than you know. It takes a certain level of, of spiritual maturity. And if we ever do build up the nerve to say those words, we often say it with hesitation because we do really think that we know more uh, than God. As if we know the future, as if we know what this trial is going to bring in us. We don't know. We think this is the end. And I always ask people to, to, to think back of the past trials and how God brought you through and how actually those trials made you more mature, made you more patient, made you more compassionate, made you more forgiving. And you look to God and you say, thank you. I needed that. If you never get to that level, you will be like that five-year-old that five-year-old that prays and pleads with her parents and says, please don't make me eat my vegetables. If you love me, you won't make me eat my vegetables. Left to themselves, they would eat cotton candy and chocolate every day, all day. But we know that is not good for them. And God knows that only good towards us is not good for us. If you only received good, 
You can't relate to people who are suffering. You can't understand the person who is weeping while they're listening to a sermon. You can't even recognize somebody who doesn't know how they're going to make it as soon as they leave this church. You may throw something out there like, just believe in God and you'll be okay. Well, you need to show them that by the Christ that is in you. You need to ask them, how can I help you? How can I sacrificially lay my life down for you? What do you need? But if life is all peaches and cream, that's not even entering your heart. You're not even down that path with them. You can't travel with them through their misery because you don't know misery. God is so good that he brings us pain. And what it works in us is this trust. That five-year-old grows up, and if they've been paying attention, right around 25, 30, 35, they start to understand, okay, I understand. I know why you did what you did. Thank you. Submission and trusting in God does not stop once you enter the kingdom. Your faith in God does not cease once you are inside the house of God and now supposedly are supposed to be walking by faith, trusting him at every turn, every, every, every fork in the road. Do I take this road of least resistance, but there may be some compromise in it, there may be some things that bring me close to the border of sin, or do I take this road that is hard, but I know I'm honoring my Lord? I know I'm doing what is right. This road is going to be tough, but I know I'm not compromising as Christ showed me how to endure and say, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will. That's what love for God does. That's what uh, uh, recognizing the love of Christ and how he loved you with his all, with his all. In verse six, Jesus continues and he says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. <clears throat> And your father who sees in secret will reward you. The word uh, uh, for room is used to, to, to speak of an inner room, a chamber, a closet. And in, in those days, it could even refer to a barn, somewhere where you just go to be alone. Because most of the people in those days didn't have a separate room to go to. But they just needed to get somewhere where it was quiet, where it's, it was just them and Yahweh and those intimate prayers all the prayers that God loves. Then in verse 7, Jesus says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, empty phrases are meaningless words that are merely repeated, thinking that you're going to get God to move in some type of action because you are repeating the same thing over and over and over like a chant or a mantra that the cults use. And even in some Christian circles, they have formulated their own uh, catchphrases, <clears throat> thinking they can get God to move on their behalf. <clears throat> Hmm. In verse 8, Jesus says, do not be like them. This brings us to <clears throat> point number two, the prayer that God hates. Every, every so often, I'll hear some immature Christians, not here, but out there somewhere, I'll hear some immature Christians uh, uh, say something like, God wants me to be happy. 
God, God wants me to be happy. I know it. He is a good God. So their prayers are formulated around that theme, around that premise. God wants them to be happy. Now, instead of praying God's will be done or biblically based prayers, they begin snatching scriptures painfully out of context, like Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for peace or welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. They grab that verse, put it in their pocket, and they run with it. They run with it. It doesn't matter that they may be living in sin and unrepentance and need to feel the pain of God's chastening and discipline. It doesn't matter that God at that very moment may be bringing them through a season of trials in order to strengthen them. It doesn't even matter that 10 verses earlier we are told the actual purpose of those words. In Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 1, we are told these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. A very narrow population of people are being addressed. These words were given to comfort the survivors who were in Babylon in exile. So let them know God has not forgotten them. God has not abandoned them. He still had big plans for them. Plans for their welfare and not for evil to give them a good future and a blessed hope. One verse before that great promise in Jeremiah 29, uh, verse 11, in verse 10, <clears throat> it says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, back to Jerusalem. With that said, here's the thing. God the Father does want all who believe in his son to be eternally happy. But in this life, that is not at the top of his list. God wants his children to be holy Faithful, compassionate, forgiving, etc., etc. You know that th those things that show that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and those other things that show that you love your neighbor as you love yourself. Those two commandments come way before the imaginary commandment, "Thou shalt be happy." I thank God for His unknowable, magnificent, and eternal decrees because somehow. Some way, happiness and true joy comes as a result of obeying those two commandments. God knows what we need. In the rest of verse 8, that's exactly what Jesus says. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Can you believe it? The one who created us actually knows what we crave Compared to what we need, peace and contentment we desire comes by and through a God who knows us and loves us and has showed us the way. Love me with your all. Love your neighbor 
as you love yourself. Give me everything. Give your neighbor everything you would give to yourself and show Christ. And there is something in us, and even man being made in the image of God, there is something about giving that makes you feel good. There's something about blessing someone else and seeing them do well and feeling uh, this, this, this inner joy that says, I helped someone. Just being made in the image of God. How much more for the child of God? I'm not saying that's easy either. To love your neighbor as you love yourself is so hard because people are difficult. People are difficult. They cause many headaches, heartaches, stomach tremors, all because people just don't listen. I put myself at the top of the list, of course. But if you don't get that, you may spend your Christian lifetime praying self-obsessed prayers, not recognizing that following the will of God in every relationship brings a spiritual transformation. Some of your prayers may sound like, oh, Lord, God of the heavens, you are mighty, you are great. You have brought me so far in life. I want to love my sister is such a pain. <laughs> Lord, I can't deal with her. Please let me love her from afar. <laughs> nope, that's not the way it works. In your prayers, you may start out with, with, with great adoration for God, but as you continue, you cannot ask God to remove the very person who needs to see the compassion, grace, and mercy of God through you. How about this? Exchanging how you feel with gratitude for the salvation you have received. How about revealing the fruit of the Spirit that resides in you to the difficult one that God has placed in you? And even though self-control is listed last, if you don't have that when you need it, you can't love when it's hard to love. You'll have no joy when the life that you is saying, I'm hard and I'm going to stay with you. And my name is Trouble, and I'm going to cause trouble at every turn. How do I have joy in that situation? By looking to God, by trusting me from nothing, and said someone else. That's okay, but it's deeper when you can look in the word of God. And you can say, here is why I believe what I believe. And here is why I trust God with my all. That's where my joy comes from. That's where I, I, I can, I can uh, look to God, and at my lowest point, I leave the church. I was feeling good when I left, but somehow when I get home, it's just like it's all gone. What happened? God says, look to me. Get in the word. You heard great preaching by Pastor Matt, and go over what you learned. Go back in John and believe it. It wasn't just a, a, a dissertation on, on what Christ did and how he prayed and now it's time to give his life up. That's good head knowledge, but what does that mean to me? I was wretched. As he was going through that, my name was in his mind. A million years from now, in eternity, in the new heavens and the new earth, praise God. I can barely remember 
what happened when I was walking in this life. And, and, and it was so, so much misery and sickness. But it's all a blur now because I am before my Savior. Praise God. I know I don't deserve to be here. I know the things that I have done, but yet he said, come here. Follow me. I love you. My son died for you. Every single sin was paid for at the cross. And if you don't wait until death, but actually grab hold of that now, as Jesus said in John 5, those who believe in him have passed from death to life. At that moment, rejoice in that. Rejoice that God has said, whatever your name is, you're mine. And I love you. The word says to walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh wants to sulk. The flesh wants to moan. The flesh wants to talk about what it doesn't have. But the Spirit says, here's what you do have. Christ. Christ. Grab a hold of Christ. We want to do right. We don't want to fight. The world wants to do wrong. The world loves to fight. The world loves to pull you into some knockdown, drag out argument. That means nothing. But at the point of salvation, the Lord gave you his spirit that you may walk in his spirit. And you don't have to go into those arguments. You don't have to go into that way that you used to win the battles. No. We go before our God in prayer. And we are honest before our God in prayer. And we confess our sins, our faults. And Jesus is trying to line us up with how we go before our Father. Personally, for prayer, years ago, I learned something that many of you prob probably know already. I'll just go through it for those who don't. To help construct my prayers, I just follow the guidelines of ACTS, ACTS. You know, it, it has helped me so much. It just, it just helps me to put my selfishness at the end. The A is for adoration. The C is for confession. The T is for thanksgiving. And the S is for, 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 for just crying out to God and just praising him and, 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 and supplicating before him and saying, Lord God, now here is what I need. Here's what I need. So if you're taking notes, you would just put ACTS on the left side um, of, your, of, of your paper and I'll just go through them slow but not so slowly, right? So for adoration, for adoration, the A, uh, uh, it speaks of God's attributes, his character. Uh, and his acts of greatness. And we see uh, uh, examples of this in the Old Testament. We see examples of this uh, through his Old Testament saints. For example, in 1 Kings chapter 8, after Solomon completed the building of the temple, he begins his prayer with great adoration for God. He says, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. That's a great way to start your prayers, with adoration, speaking of God's attributes, character, and his acts of greatness. Then there's the C for confession. 
In Daniel chapter 9, after uh, the 70 years of captivity, uh, they're just about over, right? Daniel goes before God and he's praying and acknowledging that God was just in his judgment against them. So he starts with adoration, but then he quickly moves to confession. In his prayer, he said, I pray to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. That's the adoration, and now he moves quickly to confession. He confesses, we have done, or we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules. Daniel said, we sinned, we done wrong, we acted wickedly, and we rebelled. All of these words mean the same thing, but in their culture, to repeat themselves over and over stresses the impact of the issue, whatever it may be. To confess our sin is necessary as it brings us into right relationship with our Father. Right fellowship, let me say that right, right fellowship with our Father. The relationship was made through the blood of Christ, and that's eternal. Then there's the T in Acts. It's for Thanksgiving, as I said. Now, over 300 times in the Bible, uh, we see that God is telling us to give thanks to him, or we're seeing someone who belongs to God give thanks to him. Giving thanks is a way of showing our gratefulness to God. Gratefulness is sorely lacking in the world today the secular world, as well as the sacred world. And according to 2 Tim chapter 3, in the last days, the intensity of all transgressions will increase. As you're reading this long list of some serious sins in 2 Timothy uh, 3, you come upon ungratefulness. In a list that includes lovers of money, proud, unholy, unbrutal, unappeasing, treacherous. We say, how did ungratefulness get in that list? Because being ungrateful to God is serious in God's eyes. It's like saying, Lord, it doesn't matter all these great things you've done for me. This one thing is killing me. Please remove it, Lord. How have you forgotten me? Huh? How have I forgotten? That's serious. You guys who have teenagers know what it's like to take them shopping before the school year. Saying, here, get, get, get some stuff over here. Oh, you need sneakers? Yeah, you're going to need a winter coat. Okay, get this one. By the time you get home, they're telling you what you don't do for them. You know what that's like. Imagine the almighty God. When's the last time you had to think about breathing? When's the last thing, time you had to think about the quality of the air in this place? God just gives it graciously, more than we need. You can even take a big breath if you want right now, and you, you'll be okay. We take it for granted until there's something in the air, until there are fires 3,000 miles away that's making its way over here, and now all of a sudden we find this with this strange cough that won't go away. God is so good, we take him for granted, and we are so ungrateful. Finally, the S, finally, the S 
in Acts is for supplication. After everything else, now is the time to bring your request before God. And after everything else, pray whatever you may. Philippians 4, 6 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, with supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. That does not mean you're going to get everything you pray for, but the promise that's given in the next verse is that the peace of God, the peace of God is important. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will act like brackets around you and guard your heart and mind. Guard your heart and mind. What is it to guard your heart and mind? You have to protect your heart and your mind. When you let something in that shouldn't be in there, you can't be surprised by what comes out of you. You can't be surprised by how you, how you speak to people. What were you listening to? But in your prayers, you go before God and you ask him, Lord God, here's my issue. Please guard my heart, guard my mind. I do not want to respond the way I'm being responded to. Guard my mouth, Lord God. Why do we say guard our mouth? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You have to pray for God to guard your heart and mind. How in the world can you call yourself a Christian with some of the things you say? It's one thing to, 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 to think something for a hot second and to cast the thought away by the power of God, but it's another thing to let that thing sit, to let it stay, to, 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 to have it there soaking and, and, and you're, you're dwelling on it and now it's taking control of you and in a relationship when you're being stepped on, what comes out? That very thing you were dwelling on for too long. For too long. Whether you use ACTS or your own way of going before God in your private prayers, the key to avoiding the prayer that God hates is to stay in line with his will with every word. That's why you take your time in your prayers. That's why you may want to open the scriptures and pray according to the scriptures and, and use words that the Bible uses, not the world uses. Take those, 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 those phrases, those stories that you read about and let them shape your prayer. And you honor God like that. You reverence God like that. And that takes us to my third point. The prayer that reverences God. In verses 9 to 13, we have what is universally called the Lord's Prayer. When it comes to this quote-unquote Lord's Prayer, we see there are six petitions. And out of the six, three are towards God and three are towards us. They all reverence God. They all hallow his name. We do not pray to angels, nor saints, nor to Mary, but to our Father. Now concerning the three petitions that are towards him, the first one from verse 9 declares that God is our Father. 
which means whenever we make our petition uh, towards him, even though we are to respect, honor, and reverence him as God Almighty, we still love him and seek him intimately as a child desires to be with his or her father, craving to be up under him. Some of the best times in my life, let me see if my daughter's here. Okay. Some of the best times in my life are when my children were small, right? Now, I don't want you to judge me in this, but when, when, when it was nighttime and everything was dark um, and I'm, I'm sitting, you know, with Tamara in my chair and she would want something from the kitchen. And so she would walk to the kitchen and as soon as she's about to put the light on, I'd make a loud noise and say, watch out. And she would run. She would run to me laughing. It was this crazy game. She was scared and laughing at the same time. But she would jump in my arms. God, who is in control of all things, the good as well as the bad. Whenever we're shooken up, what we should do since God is our father is turn and run to him. Run to him and jump in his arms, a.k.a. pray, cry out, supplicate. Glorify him, honor him, adore him, confess to him. That's an intimate life with God, being up under him. That's what Jesus is trying to get us to. God is our father, but Jesus did not leave it there. He did not leave it there. He is our father who is in heaven, hallowed or sanctified be his name. God is holy. His name is holy. Therefore, we do not add a curse at the end of his name. We do not speak lightly of his name. He is not the man upstairs or the big guy in the sky. He is God. And when we speak of God, we speak of him intentionally, not flippantly. We're not yelling out, oh, my God, every time somebody throws an interception or, or fails to swing at a good pitch or strikes out and loses the game. Also, we do not wear his name in vain. Now, what do I mean by that? We do not call ourselves children of God and then live like children of Satan. We don't make sure everyone in the office, knows we're a Christian, then slander the boss, fail to cover our assigned responsibilities, and then catch an attitude when confronted about it. That's left to those who do not care about dishonoring his name. That's left to the pretenders and the Sunday-only Christians. If we're doing that, we need to repent from that. Because the first petition towards God in prayer is to respect him honor him and reverence him and love him as our father in heaven whose name must be hallowed. The second, towards, the second petition towards God is that his kingdom would come. This world is dark, just dark. Everything else comes because of that. Violence, hatred, lies, abuse, sexual sin, and all sorts of deviant behavior come because this world is dark. And the closer we get to the day of Christ's return, the darker this world becomes. 
Once again, the Apostle Paul put it this way as he was sitting in prison, falsely accused, waiting to be beheaded. He wrote in 2 Tim 3, 1-5, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. In case you missed it, this world is dark. Therefore, I believe there are two aspects to the petition that God's kingdom would come. First, there's the already, and then there's the not yet. In one aspect, the kingdom of God has already come. Those who believe have already entered into the kingdom of God. According to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's the already that we see as God's church is being built upon the earth. Then there's the not yet. God's people who desire the fullness of the promised coming kingdom yearn for the light of Christ and the presence of Christ to rule universally and physically now. At the end of the book of Revelation, after the apostle John sees all of the wickedness that's to come, he then gets to the restoration and glorification of all things. He gets to see that. And I believe that's what causes him to cry out, come Lord Jesus. That's what we desire. That's what Jesus is saying we should petition for, that his kingdom would come. The third petition towards God is, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As I previously stated, all of our prayers should be phrased in such a way that we are willing to submit to God's ultimate purposes and plans by saying, your will be done. When Jesus was at the very beginning, of bearing the cup of God's wrath in the garden. He said, not as I will, but as you will. There was no conflict within the Godhead. But this was a graphic illustration of Jesus, who it's mainly for the benefit of others that we are called to pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is God's will done in heaven? Whether it's the it's, it's the, the church, we will be comforted. In verse 11, we start the petitions towards us. For God to, number one, give us our daily bread. By petitioning to God, but, uh, you know, I just was stressing the goodness of God in the time that it took him to get my order ready, right? And, and, and he told me with a straight face, I have what I have because of my hands. I work hard, so I brought my home, my car, my clothes. The food I eat is because I do it. Everything I have is because of me. Here's your order. So I didn't get into a shouting match with the guy, right? I don't want to hold up the line. It's time to go. But I just said something like, what if God took away your health right now? 
could you maintain the life you have right now? And then that was it. I left. Right? To, to pray, give us this day our daily bread, means you have taken your eyes off of your wisdom, your strength, your charisma, your giftedness, and now you have placed it, your eyes, by faith, on the one who is in control of all. Who's in control of all. You have placed your faith in the one who commands the sun to stay right there and it doesn't move. You have placed your gaze on the one who tells the waters to go here and no further and the waters obey. That's the God we serve. He's so much bigger than we can even imagine. In verse 12, the second petition towards us is for God to forgive us our debt or debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Another rendering is forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. This is how Luke 11, 4 states it. This brings us to the fact that we are sinners who are debtors to God for our violation of his laws. This means we should stand continually before the throne of God's grace, confessing our sins, as I touched on earlier. As J.C. Ryle said, we need to daily wash our feet, alluding to Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. In verse 13, the third petition towards us is for God to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. First off, God tempts no one with evil. James 1 verse 13 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. The original word for temptation includes trials and tests. Trials and tests. The world is filled with trials and tests that lead us into all kinds of evil through our wicked eyes that are tempted and too big and we want things we shouldn't have. Perhaps someone with, with, with greater faith would say, don't pray for trials to be removed. Rather, accept them. Leave it all in the hands of God. But those who know themselves know the pain of falling to their weaknesses. Plus, we just read, uh, uh, rather than being anxious, we ought to let our requests be made known to God. Verse 14 says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, you, your, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And now as Jesus shifts and he moves to your relationship with others, he says, listen, here's, here's the test. You, you, you love me? You know what happened? You know how you came into the household? I forgave you of everything. Past sins, present sins, future sins. Everything. And so here's the test. You must forgive. You must forgive. Because at first glance, this appears to be a conditional salvific promise. But from the whole of Scripture, we know that in no way is Jesus teaching that by forgiving someone, we can attain eternal forgiveness from our Father. That only comes through the blood of Christ. As Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 uh, sums up the doctrine of grace, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For every Christian here, 
Just take a moment, especially those who find it hard to forgive, right? We, right? we have this flesh, and we have a background, and for some of us, it is so hard to forgive, right? So including you, just take a moment and think about the worst things you have done in your life. Don't sugarcoat. Don't bring up your intentions. Don't try to justify why you did what you did. Now think about the little sins you've committed. You've probably forgotten 90% of them. But for every sin, I want you to think about the wages or payment from God for every sin. Death. Every sin. Death. God demands perfection. That's why we have Jesus. The person who has received grace upon grace yet shows no grace is seen as a wicked criminal who should rot in prison. To end, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 21. Matthew 18, beginning at verse 21, page 823 in your pew Bibles. The scripture says, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant, the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Impossible. Couldn't do it. Yet out of pity for him. The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. The man could have paid the debt in 100 days. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw, that, saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Remember, he cannot pay this. So also, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Criminal. It is absolutely criminal for those who have been forgiven of all from God to turn around to someone who's a sinner like them and say, no, I cannot forgive you. Of course, when it comes to true forgiveness, true relationship restoring forgiveness, repentance from the offender must be present. 
must be present. That's what God requires of us. We don't go living all kinds of evil ways and, and saying what we want and say, here I am, God. No. John the Baptist, repent. Jesus, repent. First words, repent. Peter, first sermon, repent. Repent. Turn. Turn. This is what God requires. This is what Jesus spoke of in Luke 17, verses 3 and 4, when he himself told the disciples, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, we forgive him. Forgive him. We can just say, oh, no, I'm just going to forgive. You will never get the relationship back to where you want it because that person has taken no responsibility and no accountability and you've not led them, you've not planted the seeds, I should say, to what God requires. So that if you should ever share the gospel, why should they repent? Because God is all love. Ignoring the scripture and the biblical call. I have only two applications, but I pray they will stay with you a long time. <clears throat> Application number one. Pray. Pray. Pray to your Father who is in heaven. Whether you use adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, just pray with a total dependency on God your Father who is in heaven. Application number two, when you pray, don't seek to give a great speech. Don't seek to give this, this, this illuminating, eye-opening speech to God. No, that will cause you to stop praying. A great speech does not equate effective prayer. We must reject the notion that our prayers must be perfect or they won't be heard by God. 1 Peter 3.12 tells us, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. And I'm going to close with this, because at the end of that 1 Peter 3.12, there are some words for those who reject Christ. For those who reject the good news that Jesus alone saves, the rest of 1 Peter 3.12 says, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's huge. To have the face of the Lord against you is the equivalent of being under the wrath of God. The only remedy, the only way of escape is turning from your pride and receiving the pardon that comes from God. Pride has the nicest person thinking, I'm good enough. I haven't hurt anybody, at least not recently. I take care of my family. I don't curse. I don't smoke. I don't gamble. I'm a good person. Maybe if your neighbor was judging you, you would be deemed a good person. But Jesus is judging you. In John 5, 22, he said, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to me. And there's going to come a day when you close your eyes for the final time. And James said, the body apart from the spirit is dead. We'll see, or whoever's around you will see your body hit the ground. We won't see your spirit go before God. And you'll be assigned a place of torment. A place where you will have the consciousness that, why? Didn't I listen? And you will cry out and you will regret 
everything, everything you did, not fully understanding that we all have sin, we all fall short, but we cry out to God to forgive us, to pay the cost for our sins. And you reject that, now you have to pay the cost for your sins. You have to pay the price, the penalty. I pray for anybody here who does not know they're saved. I mean, your, your calling and your election is sure. If you have doubt, see Pastor Matt or my, myself or any mature uh, believer, see, 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 see Peter, talk to someone because tomorrow's not promised. Tomorrow's not promised. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that you sent your son and you sent your word. We have the special revelation from you that reveals who you are and what you require. We want to honor you with our lives. With every breath, we want to serve you, Lord God, with every, every muscle, every fiber. But we fall short. But I am so glad we can come before your throne. We can cry out. Lord, forgive me, a sinner. Lord, deliver me from my evil heart. Forgive me for the words I say that don't glorify your holy name in heaven. Lord, we thank you for the salvation that you have given to your people, Lord God. We thank you that you have sacrificed your only son upon the cross for us, the holy spotless lamb of God. Thank you, Lord. Please save. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.